Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. If you are a dog walker or a dog trainer who is sick and tired of dealing with inquiries from clients whose first question is always, how much do you charge? And if you struggle to attract the type of high quality clients your amazing skills deserve, then you need to check out my good friend, Dom Hodgson's Pet Business Bible, Walk Yourself Wealthy, which is available from Amazon and Audible. In this book, you will discover how to charge premium prices without losing clients and have dog owners beating down your door to use your services. How to legitimately market yourself as a celebrity pet expert in your town and how to use your personality in your marketing to push away tire-kicking price buyers and attract only the best clients who are the perfect fit for you and your business. How to easily stand out from the competition by having a signature service that is unique to you. I've read the book myself. I love how concise it is. Dom has really focused on the things that make the biggest difference. You can get a copy of Walk Yourself Wealthy and Dom's other books from Amazon or Audible. And if you live in the UK, you can see Dom in action as he begins the 2019 tour of his worry-free walks and Grow Your Pet Business Fast seminars. Go to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com and click on the events tab to find a seminar near you. I've also recently started to offer online consultations. If you're a dog trainer who wants to up their game or a dog owner that's struggling to teach something, then you can book a video call with me at nickbenger.com book. I look forward to uh, actually getting the opportunity to talk to some of you listeners. Today I'm talking to Craig Ogilvie. Craig is the author of the book Interactive Play Guide and was a trainer on the BBC show Nightmare Pets SOS. He was one of the very few people to work as a civilian police dog training instructor and is the only licensed British Mondio Ring decoy. So let's get into it. Well, hey, Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. You're more than welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. It's funny because we've been trying to do that. Well, I, you know, we spoke originally probably about two years ago to try and get you on then, but it didn't end up working out. So this is probably the longest like play workshop. (laughs) uh, uh, Thinking of your play workshops now, the longest play uh, podcast I've ever done. (laughs) Been chasing you for ages, Craig. It's been a long time, long time in the banking. (laughs) We eventually got round to it, though. Um, I really want to know because I've, I've followed you for ages now and you kind of like hint at some of the stuff you were doing with dogs when you were really young. And this seems like something you've been interested in for ages. So how did you get started with all of this? So when I was a little boy, um, I lived with my granddad and I would live with him almost right away until he passed away. And uh, he was a police dog handler. So um, we always had German shepherds in the house, um, his working dogs. And I always used to go out with him and train the dogs with him. So I think that's where everything was really um, sparked from. Um, I maintained my interest all of the way through school with dogs and then really started to get serious when I guess I was about 18 
17 or 18, which is when I started to uh, like visit clubs and visit, um, visit different places that were training dogs. Um, I met my first mentor then, who was a behaviourist and just about to retire, and he gave me lots of help and introduced me really into the working dog world. And then it really just spiraled from there. So then I met my second mentor, who's like my dad, and he took me to France um, with Mondio Ring. Um, at the same time, I was working with the guy that I um, met first of all with behavior problems. And the two sort of just built together and all of a sudden I'm 32 in here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. That uh, is, it the, is it the fact that uh, you see your dad was a, a police dog handler? Is that my, why my you went... Granddad. Your granddad? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Is that why you went into the uh, protection sports early on? I guess so. It's um, a little bit serendipitous, I guess, because um, I worked for the police um, for nearly two years as an instructor as well as a civilian. And I think the, um, I think almost like the imprinting process was done with granddad because I always looked up to him when I was a little boy. And that's what gave me the interest in, in working dogs and, you know, dogs um, apprehending criminals and searching things out and stuff. And it, it was just always there all of the way through school. And as I say, I um, started to as I left school and got my driver's license, I was able to go and do things that I wanted to do. And that's when, well, that's when I got a van and dogs and started training. Yeah, because the reason I ask is the whole Mondio ring thing is really, you know, there isn't much of a Mondio ring scene in the UK. And, you know, you were the only decoy, right? You were the only licensed decoy for a long time. Yeah, for sure. I think um, from the, from the UK, like a, uh, licensed i'm the only englishman i think to this point to go overseas and get my license in just so lucky nick like i can't um i worked really hard to get everything but lots of things fell into place at the same time um the gentleman that took me to france and that we traveled to and from uh france with really regularly like without him there is no way i would have i would be where i am now so it was just a very unique sport um it was really interesting for me because the dog's bit of costume rather than just a a padded arm um there were so many from a trainer's perspective there's so many different parts of the sport and it's just so so interesting you can just become completely lost and immersed in it which i did for many many years so yeah it's really really interesting and did um, you, not did so you- I think um, I think there's interest gathering in it now but not so um, not so popular at the time when I got into it did you compete at all not with a dog no I only wore the um, wore the costume again serendipity fell into place a little bit because my German shepherd Benny who I was training um, at the same time that I met John he got an autoimmune disease and it was really upsetting and heartbreaking at the time because I couldn't work him, um, which is what I wanted to do. But I think that if he would have been well, I would have gone ahead with trying to compete and that would have been my primary focus. And I don't think I would have put as much work into the costume as I did, which really is where a good bulk of my skills as a trainer has come from. So it was um, a bit of a cloud with a silver lining, I guess. Is that your plans with your, your new dog, your current dog? Are you planning to compete? I think from um, a realistic point of view, I think because I'm so busy with working and traveling, I don't think I will be able to train as much as I'd like to to compete. Um, I'll certainly train him for the exercises and really just to, to just to go through the process because I enjoy it and I love the process, but I'm not quite so sure. And I don't think that I'll actually actively go and compete, but 
you know, he's only a baby at the moment, so that may all change when he gets to about 18 months old and the little pieces of the puzzle are coming together. Yeah, you said that, um, you know, putting so much time into becoming a decoy and, and doing that for a long time really helped your skills. And I was curious about that because um, I did the introduction to Mondio Ring Workshop that uh, they ran over at the School of Canine Science a while back. And yes. that was one of the things that, or, you know, even just from watching videos online, like there seems to be a hell of a lot of skill involved in that, in that decoy work. Yeah, it's, um, for me, there's a, like the trainers are so incredibly skilled, but there's, there's so much of it that you, you can do by yourself, but then there's, um, a large portion of it that you need to hand over to a trusted assistant. Um, and you know, the biting is, is a large portion of the sport. But the things like the escorting, the guarding of the object, um, they're all things that are, are skilled, like skilled um, parts of the sport that the helper has to teach the dog. And that's where that's where a really big portion of my learning come from, because I was very lucky to be able to work with so many different dogs in so many different aspects of the sport and really learn from so many different wonderful trainers as well. So, yeah, it's... um. It's really exciting. I, I really like it. It gives me um, goosebumps talking about it even. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice time. <laughs> How did you uh, you know, put this workshop together and start working with pet owners? With the interactive play? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, was... Am I right in thinking that was where this that kind of side yeah, of thing started? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when I was in Europe, um, I noticed that there was lots of dogs that were super aroused, interested in what was going on in the environment. Um, and it was often a big cause of conflict in the handler rela- um, dog relationship. And really much of the work that we do around the costume is break, um, based around the dog's predatory instincts and, you know, teaching them to bite something that isn't a prey creature and just switching the sequence a tiny little bit. And I realized how motivating that was um, for the animals if they were inclined or if they were naturally inclined to be reinforced by that. And then even if they weren't, how you could use their natural desire to chase to sort of put into some place a reinforcement strategy. And um, as I was working at the same time, you know, working on problem behaviours and um, helping people with different aspects of training, I started to implement what I'd learned in Europe um, to help the people and the dogs I was working with. And um, the interactive play, I always used to say that um, interaction overcomes distraction. That was one of my little catchphrases that I used to use all of the time. And I think that's really where the interactive play spiraled from. And then I was approached to write a book um, about motivation, reinforcement strategies, etc. And that's really where I made the acronym-based system from and just tried to break it down into simple, easy information that, you know, somebody that had got their first dog and the puppy was eight weeks old and they were home with would be able to read and put into place more or less right away. So, yeah, that's that's where a lot of the learning come from. So the the idea for the book came before the workshops then? Yes, very much so. Um, I remember going to a seminar in actual fact um, about being able to be a little bit more productive with the knowledge that you've got and being able to put it across to people in an easier way. And the acronym idea come from there. And that the, the idea for the book, well, came once the lady had approached me and I just sat down and started writing really, so... Yeah, it got wrote really, um, sorry, got wrote. I read it very quickly as well. It was a really quick process. So just lots of information of like seven or eight years balled up in my head. Yeah, it seemed like at the time from an outsider's perspective, you know, you really seem to have 
came come from nowhere, you know, like um I hadn't heard of you before, then all of a sudden you're all over Facebook, you're doing events everywhere, you know. Yeah, you, for sure. It seemed like you there was just so many events with you doing the interactive play workshop. So how did that all start? Did you just kind of host one yourself? Did you approach no, people? So, um I did uh I used to do like biting bite work seminars. Um, it started off with the police. Um, I did one for the military as well. And then Mike, um, the gentleman that I very first met in my teens asked me to do a bite work seminar for him. And on there, a guy, um, come along and uh, I got on with him really well. And he asked me if I'd go and do a problem solving seminar for him. And then there was quite a few people on the, uh, on the seminar and it just really spiraled from word of mouth from there. And then a lady that was um, involved heavily in agility contacted me and said, would I come and do some motivation work with the group that she trained with? And then it just it just spiraled from there, Nick. I mean, I must, um, like, from 21 all the way up until it seemed to have exploded. Like my life was completely dedicated to mondioring and working with dogs. It's all I did the whole time. I worked um, as a joiner by trade, um, so I would do that part-time and then work with dogs as often as I possibly could, and it just it just took up all of my time. So it was like a long period of work where I really had no Facebook account, um, nothing whatsoever, no social media, and then uh, as I started to progress into the workshops that's where the social media presence come from yeah i'm surprised by that because like now um having followed you on social media the one thing we spoke about this before it always kind of i always find it extremely motivating every morning you know i click the uh, facebook story and there you are like working out at like 4 a.m <laughs> and it's yeah. like oh my god craig's been up already for and uh, working out that early in the morning it's really um it's really cool for me because um like there's obviously lots of there's lots of things to fit into the day and the the exercise of some type first thing in the morning is like my anchor for the day if you like that's the thing that gets me um gets me ready for the day and i'm um, like from sharing it from a stories perspective as well i get so many messages nick on a day-to-day basis like a person will say oh you've motivated me to get up and work out and people even send like pictures over of them on their spin bikes or in the gym and stuff and it's um yeah, I just it just feels like it motivates and helps people to say, oh, you know, come on, let's get up an hour earlier, let's go and do mm-hmm. like a workout in the living room or something because it's going to make me feel better. So yeah, so it's, uh, it's exciting, Nick. I'm really lucky. <laughs> why why did you get up so early? Why not later later it's normal just, people time? <laughs> it's just, so <laughs> normal people time. So I'm an early riser anyway. But it's um, the days, particularly workshop days and delivery days, um, they're, they're long days and I have to travel quite a while to get where I'm going. And just from a time perspective, Nick, you know, some mornings it's uh, it's either get up at, you know, sometimes three o'clock and be in the gym for around about four and then travel to where I'm going. Or by the time I would get home, I could fit in in the evening, but I would prefer to get it done first thing in the morning because, again, that sets mm. me up right for the day. And it's, you know, I can, if I get up at three o'clock, by the time six o'clock hits, I'm I'm travelling. I've done you know like an hour and a half, two hours working out, and it, it gives me a real sense of achievement first thing in the morning. And it's amazing. Like that's why that's why I do it every day. It's just uh, it it gives me the kick, and I, I really do believe it's the main role in giving me the energy to be able to do the long, long days. Which is yeah, it's been a really useful tip for me. Is that something you're quite into? Because um, it reminds me seeing those social media posts from you reminds me of. Um, that uh, uh, ex-Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, 
Have you ever oh, come across yeah, his yeah, stuff? Yeah, I've listened to his podcast with Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. <laughs> Every time I see your post, it reminds me of that because he's always posting him getting up at half four, working out, and like that's a big part of his ethos. Yeah. So I wondered if that was something that you were into. No, it's um, <clears throat> so like where the idea come from was I used um, I used to train later on in the day. But um, I started, as I started to travel and when I started to work for the police, there was a large block of time that I had to stay away um, to do my general purpose police dogs, um, like training instructors course. I think it was like a month, actually. And I didn't have access to a gym um, first thing in the morning. So I started working out in the hotel room doing like hit workouts and stuff in the hotel room and then I'd done that previously but really at that point it just I realized how much energy and how beneficial it was for me and just continued going all of the way I think um the idea of the morning workouts actually come from uh Dwayne the Rock Johnson oh yeah yes another uh one of my heroes in life so that's where the um that's where the early morning workouts come out from but it's that and it doesn't have to be a long time either nick like i usually um i do when i go to the gym i usually weight train for around about an hour and then do at least half an hour cardio but even if you can fit like 20 minutes in it makes such a difference and lots of people message me because they say oh you know how do i get started and it's just getting up out of bed and doing something that gets your heart rate up and perhaps works a little bit of a sweat up first thing and i think um I'd be really surprised if somebody did it and said, oh, I really regret that. Like, it was a really bad idea. I think everybody always feels better after exercise. Is that something that comes from the Mondio world as well? Because isn't fitness, like, a big thing when you're a decoy, right? You have, Like, there's even a fitness test in the um, licensing, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. So I did my licensing in France um, in 2011, and uh, there's a theory parts of the test which is like written where you have to sit down and um, the questions all revolve around the uh, the rules of the competition. And then there is a fitness test and then you have to work um, some dogs as well from different categories of the competition. So the fitness is like a, is a really, really big aspect of the training um, to become an assistant. And how do you find the difference between working with like um, working dogs to working with people and their pet dogs? Um, I just think the goals are different. I mean, it's all behaviour, Nick. Um, for me, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're, we're modifying training and reinforcing behaviours, aren't we? I just think the goals change ever so slightly. Um, working dogs, a genetic influence on their behaviour is stereotypically different to, you know, um, the pet people that I work with. So the dogs are driven to do things in different ways. Um, and the attitudes of the people are, are different a lot of the time as well. So, you know, um, the education perspective um, for a pet person, for me, is obviously absolutely ginormous because I want to try to give them as much education as possible so that they're able to start understanding the behavior with the dog. But as where a lot of sports people, people that are into performance dog work, um, they're really quite educated. Not everybody, but there's a good portion of people that are quite educated um, um, in animal behavior. So it's ever slightly different from the human perspective but then with the dogs it's just different goalposts um for me yeah it's it's interesting that uh yeah no it's really interesting like when i remember when i came and saw you um i didn't know a huge deal about you at first and i just thought you know come along and i've told this story before i think even on the <coughs> podcast when we spoke about you and you know when i first watched it i didn't 
Um, don't take any offense here, but I didn't really think much of it at first. It was kind of of like, okay, well, you know, we're playing tug or whatever, but it wasn't until, it wasn't until a couple of weeks later when I actually started doing it with my dogs that I realized, oh, wow, you know, I've really missed like so (laughs) much here, right? Like I feel like I, I feel like I, we're missing a part of the puzzle because, um, I think with the kind of traditional positive reward based training, we tend to have such an emphasis on using food that we never really build skills when it comes to tug and when it comes to playing with the dogs as much. Is that something you found? Yeah, I think um, for me, I mean, all of the behaviours that I shape from scratch, um, I would use food most certainly for them to begin with, Nick. That's that's something that almost 75% of the time I would do. Um, but I just think a lot of the time it's, People get caught in in a pattern often, don't they? Because um, you know, like we, we use food. Food is very reinforcing for the animal. It works really well. There's lots of different variations of food um, that we can use. There's lots of different ways that we can deliver food, and it's a fantastic reinforcer. And sometimes I just think, um, depending on perhaps sports background that you're from or your training background in general, sometimes um, engaging with like um, some play or different forms of non-food reinforcement can just be a little bit. Um, abnormal to, for some people really it's not something that they think about using and then um, the other thing that comes is that often when you start to interact with a dog with like a type toy you start to play with them you can see um, due to the reinforcement that we're using you can see the arousal level of the animal start to lift and lots of people aren't comfortable with that because they feel that it's going to produce problems so I think that there's lots of different aspects as to why some people prefer not to to, but I think when you structure the game to suit the dog individual, for me, Nick, like, I'm so wildly passionate about it. It's, it's just something that can really enrich both the life of the dog and the human at the other end of the lead as well. It's just so, it's something that's so beneficial. Yeah, well, that's exactly how I felt. You know, at first I um, I didn't quite get, get that, but it took a little while for it to kind of settle in. And then once I started doing it and actually doing what you were taught, like, you know, I can completely see where that passion comes from because it definitely rubbed off on me. Like seeing oh, that, you know, seeing that uh, that uh, result in the dogs. But you said something there that really interested me because it's something that I've come across where there seems to, there's with the whole like arousal thing. There seems to be two schools of thought. Like the school of thought of you know, let's try to reduce it as much as possible, and then the, the school of thought that seems to come more from like a working dog background or a sports dog background, <clears throat> which is more you know, let's train the dog under arousal and teach uh, our behaviors in a way that they can, like, you know, they they perform under arousal and there's some kind of control in those circumstances. Yeah. How do you feel about that? So for me, I think arousal um, past a certain adaptive level for each individual animal um, is no good whatsoever. So if you lift the dog up into a state of arousal in which they're unable to communicate, which I see often, for me, that isn't beneficial for the dog the handler or the relationship um but i think that when you understand uh the dog's response to the stimulus that you're reinforcing them with and you can alter it correctly to make sure that the dog is still able to perform communicate and interact with you um, i think it's just so so 
positive for them, Nick. It's, you know, there's lots of dogs that are extremely, extremely reinforced by food. Um, You know, I work with several different breeds every single day. And, you know, some of them are so reinforced by food that we could go ahead training them with food for the rest of their lives and there'd be um, no issue whatsoever. But, you know, with some dogs, uh, you know, that they take the food, they're interested in it, it's reinforcing, but perhaps it it loses its allure or its its reinforcing status after a particular time. And sometimes in my experience, by mixing up the reinforcement strategy, it makes it so valuable for the training and so valuable for the animal and so valuable for what you're doing because you can use that arousal as a positive um, as long as you really understand how, when to use it and the side effects that it can have if it's used incorrectly. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And, And what it reminds me of is something that you were talking about the analogy you used, which is, which is like going up a mountain, right? Yes. Do you know, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah. So like, um, um, then you go over the top of the peak of the mountain, which is where people end up falling off. So is that the one that you're referring to? Yeah. So you were talking about, um, only taking the dog so far up the mountain, but what it reminds me of is, um, is what you were just saying with arousal, right? Like it seems like a lot of, um, people are scared to get beyond one, right? Like they're scared to get yeah, beyond yeah, the summit. Sure. Um, but there, there is huge reward to be had. Uh, 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 um, <laughs> I'm trying to do the mountain okay. analogy. You know? <laughs> it's okay. So, like, I'm, I think I'm, I, can, I can help if you like. Um, so, I think I find that the um, the best place, the sweet spot perform, uh, for, um, for performance, is usually somewhere round about like three quarters of the way up the mountain, you've not quite reached the peak of it yet, but there's a sweet spot found and a ledge, whereas a dog can perform in a motivated, um, reinforced, you know, really interactive way. Yes, I really want to do this with my mum or dad, and they're still able to communicate fluidly, and we see no negative side effects. But I think the issue being is that lots of people push the dogs to the top of the mountain, whereas either they get disengagement or problematic behaviours start to set in because they've lifted the dogs um up into a state in which they can no longer communicate or no um, longer think clearly. And I, I, another thing that I think can be a huge learning curve, it certainly was for me when I started to work with dogs that became very aroused very quickly. Um, you know, so uh, for example, like the Doberman that is in my Facebook picture, and I think you can see it as well, Sky, uh, Craig. I can see it just uh, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. when I first started working with him as a puppy, you know, you, you try and play tug with him and not like like most dogs you know you get a bit of a game going but with him straight away he was just going getting so aroused that he was pulling yeah. at your sleeve and all that kind of stuff um is that something you come across a lot yeah it happens lots and um what i try to explain to people at that point is that it's not the dog um being spiteful you know like trying to bite them or um lots of people say oh they just get silly it's not them getting silly they just don't at that stage understand the context of the game or what the game is so you know like when i teach a dog to chase and bite a toy um, i'm a very big fan of them um, chasing the toy out and away from the body so that they learn that they bite the law or the article away from the body so that when we 
what we don't get then is something like I see almost every day because the handler has wiggled the toy in the dog's face um, to get them to bite it um, through no fault of their own. It's just um, it's a really common practice that people do. But I always like grab a toy and I like wiggle it towards the handler's hand and I say, oh, grab the toy, grab the toy. They try to grab the toy and the first thing they make contact with is either my shirt sleeve or my hand. And I say, the only difference between like the puppy or the young dog or the adult dog is that they've got 42 really sharp teeth in their mouth. So when they um, catch my hand like that, it, they've made exactly the same um, error as you have. It's, but it's not an error in their case because we haven't taught them, but that isn't something we want them to do. So I always teach them to chase away from the body. And then I also teach them that when I withdraw the article and um, often like give them a sweetie because I've asked them to let go, etc. when I hold it up to my chest then that's something that's inaccessible in that moment and if they offer a replacement behavior rather than jumping up at me that's when they're going to be reinforced either with the food um that i've got in my pocket or we're going to reactivate the toy and start the game again so i think that um a lot of the time that there isn't lots of structure to play and i think if we just introduce some really simple structure it makes it the criteria are really clear for the animal it makes them really easy for them to understand what's part of the game um, and what's not and then that avoids any of the problematic behaviours that can often form because it, you know like the, the people say oh he's over aroused or um, he does this behaviour he does that behaviour a lot of the time if the criteria is really clear for the dog um, they really understand that oh no you know when mum says loss or when dad says loss I'm going to get sweetie so I'm going to let go or they're going to start the game with me again and then when I lift the toy up to um, when mum and dad lift the toy up to my chest if I offer that sit or um, I offer a hand target or something alternative that's when I'm going to be reinforced I'm not going there's no reinforcement in me jumping up trying to take the toy off of mum or dad does that make sense yeah I think that's a really good way of putting it actually because the way I've always thought about it is when we're doing that kind of work we're teaching the dog to be able to control themselves at um at when they're aroused, right? But mm-hmm. actually what you just said is brilliant. You, you know, breaking it down to really just operant conditioning, right? Like, you know, when we play this yeah. game, this means that, right? Like you just, it's, yeah, yeah. Like it's really as simple as that. It's, it's just, yeah, exactly. tra- it's yeah, just you, training, right? Yeah, you just make it really super um, simple for the dog to understand. And that the most reinforcement in is, is in the behavior. Um, that's either well, it just becomes functional for them, doesn't it? Because um, if they plump their bum on the floor, or if they offer something else, sometimes it's paws on the floor. Um, sometimes they'll offer like a hand target because they've been taught that previously. I'm going to take that because that offers me an alternative to the jumping up and taking the toy off of me. And then you see very, very quickly the dog understands that the reinforcement is in that behaviour, and the other one offers no reinforcement whatsoever. And um, like a lot of the time as well, when people say to me, oh, you know, the dogs get super excited, uh, you know, they, they become very erratic very quickly. Lots of the dogs can sometimes just, just effectively being like a frustrated battle for the resource with the handler. So um, if we've got like a dog that's latching onto its toy and the handler's, um, you know, lifting them up and like, rattling them up and down um there's lots of dogs that are reinforced by that you know they would completely contradict what i'm going to say but um you know conversely to that i see lots of dogs where the handler plays in a boisterous style like that and what the dog's behavior says to me is that i'm not comfortable i'm going to pull myself around the back of the handler to try to get myself as far away from the source of stress as possible which that point is the handler's interactions or um the behavior of the handler and then when like they let go of the toy often the dog then you know takes the 
the the trophy, the parading article, the toy away from the handler, and they're happy to engage with it by themselves because they've won that battle and don't wish to engage in the interaction again. Does that make sense? Yeah, and there's kind of like an intensity, right? Like there's like intensity is a factor here as well, isn't there? Because mm-hmm. it seems like there are dogs. Well, if with that Doberman, for example, I, I might want to teach him to play tug initially at a, a really low intensity, right? Like we're going to try because I know that, you know, if I start playing tug with him within a few seconds, he's going to be, you know, hanging off my shoulder. Like, yes, you know, I, I start at a low intensity. I might teach him the skills, trying to play with him as calmly as possible. And then as those skills develop, we can then start to increase the kind of intensity and excitement of the play. And that's that, that level in which you lift the intensity to, um, for me, Nick, and in my opinion, is going to be relevant to the animal that you're working with, or the, sorry, the dog that you're working with. So, um, but for your dog, it may be the case that he's able to work, communicate, and be very um, effective in the behaviours that you're asking him to perform in a relatively high state of arousal. And that's because you've put practice into those behaviours and you've put practice into those um, sessions of arousal. And that's something that you're both used to doing. But, you know, with dogs that have got absolutely no practice in that whatsoever, exactly right. You know, sometimes the tuggy is so super gentle, and which it is oftentimes with me anyway. And, you know, they've only got to pull on the toy a tiny little bit and I let them win. And the first behavior I teach them is to, um, you know, come back to me for a little bit more of the game. And I think it, a lot of the time if people just go like straight in and like grab onto this toy, you know, wave it into the dog's face and then jerk them all over the place. Um, the question I always ask myself at that point is, is that reinforcing for that particular dog? Some dogs would completely contradict everything that I'm saying and they may find that very, very reinforcing. But um, a lot of dogs that I see don't find it reinforcing and that's where we start to get um, perhaps the problematic behaviours occur, um, lack of connectivity with the article, the dog disengaging as soon as they win the toy and trying to run away and do something else with it, um, showing lack of desire to return back to the handler. So I think it's it's just so different for every dog and taking everything incrementally and, and making sure that we're making progress and developing a little bit more understanding with the dog each time we play for me is something that's extremely beneficial. So do you increase the intensity as the dog starts to understand the skills and, and the game or do you do you not do that with... I don't know. It sounded there like you were hesitant to increase intensity. Is, is that kind of across the board? Is is that? So I try to work with always well with inside the dog's threshold for an arousal response. So I always want to make sure um, that the play sessions are relatively short in intervals, so that the dog um, we're not going to keep the dog um, extremely aroused for a long period of time. Um, I generally break the play sessions after a set period of time that's relevant on the dog, and then um, get them to engage in some type of activity um, that's going to involve olfaction or sniffing so that um, it slows down their respiration, circulation, and the rest of their bodily function so that we're not lifting them up too high. And then I take the arousal. To, uh, the, the dog tells me how far I can go into the arousal pot or how high I can lift the stimulus for the particular dog. You know, there's lots of dogs that I work with. Um, agility dogs are a really good example. They're used to interacting in quite an aroused way all of the time. They're able to communicate, perform, and understand everything that I ask, read my behavior in that state of arousal. And that's absolutely fine. What I try to avoid, and the reason that I say um, that I was being hesitant around the word intensity is because something that I don't do 
is ever become super boisterous or rough with the dogs when I'm playing with them. That's that's something I always try to make sure that I'm consistent with all of the time and that all of my advice is always consistent with because I, I don't want to ever put the dogs in a position in which they feel comf- um, uncomfortable with the interaction. And it, a lot of the time I, I see the pattern in which perhaps a dog isn't quite as comfortable as it could be in the interaction of tuggy. And I see so many side effects or um, lack of desire to play, lack of interest in articles, particularly in the developmental period when people first start playing with their dogs. And again, that can be completely contradictory depending on the dog you're working with. You know, um, I'm going to do a workshop uh, the day after tomorrow for a play workshop. There'll probably be um, 18 dogs on that day and it's a really good chance that you know half of them will be completely comfortable with their handler interacting in a relatively boisterous way so it it's it's contradictory but i always go with the, the safest and the and the method that's always going to lean on the um comfort of the dog because what i never want to say to somebody is increase intensity what because it means something different for every person nick does that make sense yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Sorry, I yeah, flooded so, my words a little bit there. I was thinking, <laughs> I started to think when my next play workshop was. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's just interesting because, um, you know, if I'm starting out with a little puppy, then obviously I can see what he's saying completely. You know, I'm I'm not going to play with that dog in the same way that I'm going to play with Tico the Doberman, right? Like, the dog yes. just isn't ready, right? Like, it's just, yes, it would be sure. completely overwhelming. It, it's kind of like, I would imagine you know, trying to teach someone a game by just throwing them into a competitive match, right? Like, yes, exactly, you know. exactly right. Yes, you're, you're completely right. Um, there's a, an analogy that I heard uh, like years and years ago, and it's always stuck with me. It would be like trying to teach um, a youngster boxing and putting them straight in with somebody five or six um, years older than them. And again, it being like a competitive match, it's really likely that they're not going to want to engage in that game again. That isn't, I don't use that um, analogy or comparison just for um, interactive play. I mean, with anything, it would be, we want to slowly, slowly introduce the dogs to the behaviour or to the reinforcement strategy to ensure that each um, progressive step that we take is reinforcing for the dog. And if like um, a lady comes to see me and she's got uh, a border collie that's six years old and she plays with the dog, it's a really enthusiastic tugger. You know, it throws the toy back up at her and jumps up at chest height and tugs her arm out of socket. It's really likely that because of the last six years of um, reinforcement history with that dog, if she's got a new dog that's perhaps a year old, she's going to try to play, even if it's um, unknowingly so, with her new dog the same way as she plays with that dog. And that's where the individualism of the dog and, you know, making sure it's refined to suit the animal as an individual, for me, is super important. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it there. And, and like, it's interesting, one of the things you said, which I feel like made a huge difference for me as well, is this idea of allowing the animal or allowing the dog to win. Because I think a lot of people think, especially with Tug, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, old school thinking going on where it's like, you know, if I let the dog win, then is he going to think that he's dominant over me? Is he going to, you know, is this going to affect his behavior? And actually, if we just think about this like a game, you know, no one likes games that they're crap at, right? You just (laughs) don't like games that you suck at. If we can make the dog think that they're good at the game, then actually they start to enjoy it more and they start to get good at the game. That's what I've noticed. And they want to bring it back to you. So, like, um, I've been challenged with a lot of um, of 
that particular comment, oh, you know, we shouldn't let the dog win. But if you watch a lot of the dogs that come onto my workshops, you know, as soon as the handler lets them win, they're, they're throwing the toy back at the dog, uh, sorry, back at the handler to play more of the amazing game that they've just had. Um, because it, they're, they're letting them build. They're, they're allowing them to feel as strong as them. If we're just playing a game of tug, whereas I'm dragging the dog along the floor, you know, you know, the particular dogs are going to find that reinforcing. But where is the reinforcement in that? You know, apart from they're just being dragged along the floor. You know, that's why I introduce tactile affection during the game if the dog's suited to it. That's why I introduce um, rhythmical zigzag motion so the dog can start to learn to weight shift and pull the handler back. That's why I introduce lots of wins and the dog um, charging back to the hand because it gives a variation and uh, like diversity to the game rather it being just the dog biting something and us pulling them along the ground which um, can, can so often be the case so it, again the dog's got to feel like it's can win and like like it's as strong as us because otherwise we're not going to develop what I call the big heart the dog thinking yes I can do this I want to bite that toy I can win it but when I do win it I want to go back to dad anyway yeah well I really want to get into these subtleties I really want to get into because what I've realized now through doing this is, you know, from the outside looking in, you can look at someone playing with their dog if you don't know better and think, you know, not much of it. You know, they're just playing with their dog. But actually, when you come to your workshops and when you observe people that really know what they're talking about with this, you realize that playing with a dog, like, there's a huge amount of skill involved. So I'm wondering, because I know that there's going to be people that are listening to this and they're thinking, you know, my dog just won't play tug like he's just not playing tug um he's, he's not showing any interest in the toy how do you work with a dog like that so um I, I tend to follow a little bit of a pattern um if a dog comes um on a workshop and the handler says to me they don't want to interact they won't play with me they don't pick up toys the first thing that i'm going to do dependent on the dog's behavior in the environment because a lot of the time um the stress of the environment can be influencing the dog's behavior so people will say to me you know my dog won't play but every time they get the dog to play, it's in a stressful agility environment or a stressful flight environment or a stressful obedience environment. So I always explain um, the influence of the environment and what um, influence that can have on the dog's behavior. And then if the dog is comfortable and his body language suggests that it's comfortable in the environment, we go ahead with the session on the workshop. The first thing that I'm going to do is test the dog's desire to chase, see if it's interesting in something moving. Um, I'll usually do that with some form of a roadkill toy normally, like something little and very inoffensive. Um, I may squeak it to start with um, rather than call the dog's name. I'll roll it across the floor and let the dog make the decision. That's really important. I don't wiggle the toy in the dog's face. I don't say, here, what's this? What have I got here? Um, I'll throw it across the floor and see if the dog shows interest in it. Um, if the dog approaches the article at that point, what I'll often do then is, you know, just approach it at the same time. Um, if the dog comes away from it, I'll pick it up. If not, I'll cure it away with my body language, pick it up and throw it across again. If the dog goes for it a second time, what I'm probably going to do then is um, attach some type of an extension to it. So whether it's like a bit of string or something like a flirt pole, and I'm going to flick the toy away in the same manner. But this time when the dog charges towards it, I'm just going to moving so it looks like by itself and that usually evokes the dog's desire to chase once they start chasing um i go ahead with the dogs um chasing the article usually most often they do what i call the snow fox pounce they try to stop the toy with their feet um at that point i, I stop it but i keep the toy moving um just afterwards to try to encourage them to grip onto the toy with their mouth um once they've done that 
I generally then go into a very, very light bit of tension on the toy by just applying a tiny, tiny tad of tension on the um, on the string that's attached to it. And as soon as the dog feels a tiny little bit of pressure on the toy, I reduce the pressure and just run with them again. So what I'm encouraging at that point is a little bit of weight shifting. So I always say pressure equals parade. If the dog puts any pressure on the toy, they get to win it, and then we run around in with the toy in their mouth and then just slowly progress towards um, working with the tug just a little bit closer to the dog. That would be the pattern that I would follow most often, Nick. Yeah, that's a fantastic process. I'm I'm so glad that you shared that with people because that's really comprehensive. It's interesting because, you know, I've I've heard lots of different approaches to getting these dogs that are that are maybe hesitant to play tug to play tug. You know, I've heard people try and do it with clicker training and free shaping and all this kind of stuff. So it's interesting to hear you take uh, this approach and, you know, hear out your process there. Yeah, it's um because you can teach the dog to tuggy with um like clicker training as you say for um, free shaping it becomes I always ask myself the question at that point um, we're, we're teaching the dog to do a trick which beca- means the toy becomes associated with food which means that it, effectively it, it would probably become a secondary reinforcer because of the association with food um, and sometimes that works absolutely fantastically and the dog starts to find the um, the activity itself reinforcing Often what I see in that set of circumstances, not all circumstances, but often um, the dog then associates the article with food. So like they tug it for a second. It's like a hand target. I always compare it to the dog does a hand target. They look at you at the corner of their eye, depending on your hand. They're like, I've done it. Can I have the food yet? So they're, they're expecting yeah. the reinforcement that comes afterwards. Um, they may find the behavior reinforcing in anticipation of the food that comes afterwards. But it's what I try to do is, is to create the tug as an independent entity if possible. And I use food as well. So there's not, I'm, I'm not against using food. Um, I use food in lots of different ways on workshops um, to go ahead with the tugging behavior. But I always try to get it with a non-food derived process to begin with. And lots of the time as well, people, um, it's like the the value of our body language. I'm, I'm a massive, huge, geeky fan of dog body language but i think it's also really like relevant to think of the the handler or the person that's working with that dog their body language and how they approach and how they go about their work with the dog in the session because there's lots of things that you can do that can inadvertently that that they're mistakes i don't mean mistakes as in oh what you're doing is wrong but it may just be impeded in the process so lots of dogs that don't um tuggy or don't want to interact with a toy are heavily reinforced by food so if that handler stands head on and with all of the antecedent arrangements suggesting that there's food available um it's really likely that the dog is going to expect reinforcement by food so um if they're standing with their their treat patch um their treat pouch clipped onto their side and stand head on and we all follow behavioral patterns of one type or another me included what they're going to do subconsciously at some point is offer a body language cue that suggests that they are going to deliver food. Um, And if we have any interest in the toy at that point, it's really likely that the dog will come off of the article in anticipation of the food that's coming afterwards. So a lot of the time I try to change the behavioural pattern of the human almost completely to try to get the dog to engage in the behavior in a completely different context. Sometimes people interact with their dogs or they've got a new dog um, that's perhaps a little bit sensitive to body language you know um if they if they approach them head on the dog's not quite so comfortable so at that point it's the case that the, the distance of the toy and using an extension as we just talked about is an extremely beneficial asset because if a dog doesn't engage in the behavior by, by itself um f- for me 
it's not often beneficial in that moment if we're wiggling the toy in the dog's face to try to get them interested in it um uh, that's not the process i like to follow i like them to make the decision to engage in and i think altering the um the handler's body language and all of the different aspects or changes that we can make to set them in the dog's favor makes all of the difference in the process yeah that's really interesting i hadn't even considered that and one thing uh you know you keep talking about the handler wiggling it in front of the dog's face and that's something i see dog owners do all the time right like you know you hand them a dog a tug a tug toy and mm. they just kind of shove it in the dog's face <laughs> it's yeah. like and and that's I, I probably learned this from your workshop um you know this idea of of you know, dogs want to chase stuff. You know, they don't, the rabbit, at, at no point does the rabbit ever just run up yeah, and get just, in the dog's face. <laughs> yeah, it just jump, jumps into his mouth like, come on, get me. It's, um, and I think it's, uh, again, it's just, it, it's like the not winning the toy. That has become, uh, yeah, that's become one of the things that people do, isn't it? To try to get their dogs interested in a toy, you know. And if you've got a dog who's, genetics suggest or like its genotype suggests that it's got a a good predatory interest you could probably wiggle wiggle like a leaf in their face nick and they're going to bite it because Uh that's what that's what their genetics suggest you know and that's that that's okay for that dog because lots of people will follow that process with you know five six and seven dogs and will produce a result because of a dog's genetic influence on their behavior um but it's not always the case and i see so often unfortunately on workshops where i'll say to the handler you know like oh let's have a look at the toy that you use and as they get their toy out of their pocket you can see their dog's body language you know start to change they tilt their head to one side or they go oh this is a really interesting smell over here and a lot of the time that's because the the handler has spent a large portion of time you know inadvertently putting quite a lot of pressure or social pressure on the dog to try to engage in an activity that they have absolutely no idea what we want them to do you know it would be like me waving a really weird foreign food um article in your face and expecting you to just go oh that's food i'm going to eat it i mean it's really likely not the case you're probably going to like lash out at me or um, <laughs> engage in some type of a displacement activity i don't know if two. i want trouble with you craig i've seen your <laughs> i've seen your workout uh, i think i'll i think i'll leave you to it mate <laughs> but it's, um, yeah. it, they're, the, they're the subtleties that for me aren't subtleties because I'm very, very lucky to be able to work with so many dogs and people on such a regular basis. But um, they're the subtleties that people often say to me, oh, I hadn't realised that or oh, I hadn't recognised that. So as much as the the, the play and, and finding out the method that that dog finds reinforcing, I find it so reinforcing for me just to let the to, to give the person little tips, little things that they can read that their dog's, you know, telling them so that they're not going to inadvertently put their dog in a position in which they're uncomfortable or they, they don't want to engage in the said activity. Yeah, I I always think, you know, um, obviously you've got a really awesome job teaching people all this stuff, but at the same time, it's I, I find it quite challenging sometimes to teach people to be able to play with their dogs when it doesn't come naturally to them because I feel like there is such a skill there to be developed and that that can be quite hard to teach people. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's like football, isn't it? Like you can show someone how to kick a ball, but yeah. the only way that they can <clears throat> learn it is by just doing it and doing it and doing it. Yeah, I think it's um, what I, I always try to 
to focus on. You know, everybody has different capabilities, don't they? And um, I always try to make sure that the technique that I offer the person that I work with suits both the dog and the handler because uh, I would, you know, dread to think that I left somebody with a technique that they felt completely incapable of putting into place after the workshop. So um, sometimes I can see that, you know, the technique that I've done with the dog perhaps isn't right for that that pairing or for that team and I alter it slightly to make sure that the handler can influence it and that they produce a result because that's reinforcing for them because if they're going home and trying the technique and they they try two or three times and don't get a result that isn't very reinforcing it's really likely then they're gonna oh you know I won't do that or I'm not very good at that so um one of my big catchphrases is always finish on a win and for me that's just as much for the dog as it is for the handler so that they can both finish each session thinking yeah we we did that we both had a good time because it's going to encourage them to go back and do it again and just um really establish that as a reinforcer yeah um yeah i can totally see that right like positive building positive associations you know that seems to be important across the board i was wondering having come from this kind of protection mondio ring background um do you think there's a disparity between the skill set when it comes to play between people that come from that background and people that maybe come from more of a traditional learning to be a dog trainer um, uh, approach. Yeah, I think I think particularly for people that um, have been in the positive biting world, there is a large amount of work that revolves around the predatory sequence in that so we're going to teach the the dogs to bite through what they would call prey drive and for me that is a large part of where creating the desire to play comes from and I always try to make sure or I, I always find it the case that people that have had that experience and understand how to gain the dog's interest in an article so it would be very uncommon in my experience that you would see somebody that was used to working with several protection dogs, particularly in a positive way, that would wiggle the toy in the dog's face or wiggle the toy in the new dog's face. What they're likely going to start to do is like trail it along the floor and instigate the dog's interest in or build interest from a distance. So I think that because there's more focus on it in that world, that, yeah, there's a difference. And it's just different the way and the way that it's applied, Nick. Does that make sense? Yeah, because one thing that I've found through just kind of my own kind of quest for knowledge is, you know, when I'm looking for information on the science, right, when I'm looking for operant stuff and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, all of the behaviorism, right, like all of that stuff, yeah. the reward-based community is unrivaled, right? Like there's such a yeah, sure, um, yeah. depth of knowledge. But it seems like if I want to learn how to become better at play skills or if I want to learn how to use toys to motivate my dogs, oftentimes I'm, I'm having to, I'm finding myself going to people that are involved in the protection sports. And usually those people have more of a kind of balanced mindset in their approach to training, but, but they just seem so far out ahead with, with the tug skills. And I guess that's because these protection sports, like, that's what you do. That's what you do day in, day out. And so it kind of makes sense. But I'm just wondering if you've observed the same thing. Yeah, it's, um, I do notice that, that there is a difference. But um, it's, it, and I think as well, um, 
from my perspective, when the dog is biting a big tug toy on legs that's running away from you, and you want to reward the dog when it comes back to you for letting go of the big tug toy and legs, you need to have something that's extremely reinforcing back with you, Nick. And I, I think is where that is likely where a lot of the um, the skill and the use of players derive from, because they understand that it must be reinforcing for the animal to come back to them. But then with, you know, if you go to a pet class, um, you know, just like a standard pet class or a puppy course or something, um, it's really likely, rightly so, that the trainers, the professionals there are going to put a large focus on um, the clicker, which I use all of the time, and food, which I use all of the time. So none of those things are wrong. That's exactly what we should be doing. But I just think sometimes play is overlooked a little bit so because I'm not quite sure for the reason why, because it would be unfair for me to say, because I'm not quite sure. But it seems that sometimes play is like an overlooked entity. And then the closest that people get to play is throwing a tennis ball for a dog. So it's and that's that's generalizing a, a tiny mm-hmm. little bit. But it, it often seems the case that, you know, in the performance dog world, agility, obedience, um, uh, doggy dancing, fly ball. These people are used to using toys to reinforce their dogs. Um, but, you, you know, um, I teach and work with lots of people, wonderful people that own pet dogs. And when I introduce a, the, the form of play that I teach, you, you, sometimes it, it seems as if it's something completely new to them. Like they, they didn't realise that to do that in a structured way was possible and to see the dog, in their opinion, be reinforced and be enjoying it so much and, you know, be performing behaviours for that reinforcer. So, yeah, I, th- I think there is a difference, Nick, but I'm, I, it's not wrong for there to be a difference. I just think it's it's a different a different approach to the way that people train and the world that they live in. Yeah, well, I think there's great value in in getting good at both right like what you're saying resonates to me with me because you know before i came across you and and kind of had this like you know you gave me that epiphany like oh actually i'm I'm missing something here you know i would consider myself good at using food to reinforce dogs and i wouldn't have even realized that i had any kind of deficit when it comes to playing with a dog but having you know having you plant that seed and then going out there and kind of trying to find more information like, I just, I just, it just seems to be a bit of a, like a void there that I notice and yes. people, and, I, and thankfully, you know, thankfully you're out there, you know, you're, you're filling that void and, and yes, putting this sure. good information out there. And I think it's, um, I think it has been a void for quite a while. And that's one of the reasons, Nick, that I'm so passionate about what I do because, you know, again, if I have, um, if I do a day's full of workshops and I see 18 people with 18 dogs, you know, my goal is always to leave all 18 people happy and happy dogs, smiles on faces, wanting to go home and put the techniques we've got into play, put into place on that day because that they can see their dog finds it so reinforcing. So that's like, um, you know, on, on the day that I'm working, that's always my goal. And, you, you know, I, I carry that out every time I do a set of workshops. And that's why, for me, it's, it, it's magic that's often overlooked. Yeah, well, let me ask you a, a tough question because, you know, with this podcast, I'm obviously very, everyone knows me as being a reward-based trainer, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. I always joke around that I'm like the, you know, uh, I, cause, cause we talk, I, 
I'm butchering my I'm yeah, stumbling all over the place. It's like I did with my workshops earlier. <laughs> well, let, I let always spits out. <laughs> I have a lot of friends that are balance trainers, and I always joke around that I'm just like uh, I I fully accept the stereotype. You know, I'm the cookie pusher, hippie, whatever, right? Yeah. But a lot of my friends that are balance trainers, they you know when we get into this stuff, when we start talking about this stuff, they they are insistent that. Um, all of this positive training when it comes to um, bite work in a in a working context right like police dogs and military dogs it's all a bit of a facade right like and there is no way they're insistent there's no way that you can get a dog that is actually biting a real criminal to let go um, and without training them using some kind of force because they would say, you know, that dog is in a kind of like a fighting state and there's nothing more reinforcing than that. I'm wondering what you, what your thoughts are on that. If, if there is some truth to that, if, if, if you've experienced different. For me, Nick, um, I, it always goes back to um, a statement that a Mondio ring judge, me, judge told me, God, it must be nearly 10 years ago now. Um, letting go means open your mouth. So o- open your mouth and let go of what you have in your mouth. That is a behaviour the same as a sit, um, a down, a hand target as any other behaviour. The behaviour will be performed in relevance to the reinforcement that comes after they open their mouth. Um, And there is absolutely no reason at all. I I, I would never, ever go about or dream of going about teaching a dog to to let go, to open its mouth in in an aversive manner. Like If the reinforcement after, after the letting go is sufficient fills the dog's needs it will let go and drive back to you and you know i i do that on play workshops all of the time you know um just the other day there was a lady there whose dog would not let go she said to me there is no way this dog will let go of of anything whatsoever you know that what that dog was biting a toy but i said to her does he understand what you want him to do and she said yeah yeah he understands but not in that context you know she'd got in so much conflict with the dog about asking it to let go of the toy. And, you know, she was not aversive by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But what she was resorting to is, like, holding on to this toy and just waiting for the dog to let go or, like, trying to take it out of his mouth. And I said, you're never going to get the dog to do it that way. You've got to show him that there is extreme reinforcement, positive reinforcement, in letting go of the toy. So, um, And she was working him in such an aroused state. You could see all this conflicted behaviour coming in. And when we stripped it back, to start with, we changed the toy so that the association was completely different. Um, I saw if the dog actually knew what we wanted him to do in that context, the way that the lady uh, had been doing previously, she said to me, I don't think he understands um, what I'm asking him to do. And I said, no, but we, we switched around what we were doing. Um, she said he'll never let go for food, not in a million years. There's no way that he'd do that. He let go for food. And then very shortly afterwards, he was letting go for a toy. In fact, he was throwing or spitting the toy out at me um, for the one that I had hidden behind my back because he understood that that behavior was reinforcing. But it's all about how much work do you put into your release, Nick? It, for, a, for a puppy, it's the first behaviour I teach. It, it's the, the dog bites onto a toy and I teach them to let go of it and show them that there's an immediate reward in that and there will always, always be a reward when you let go of that toy. And I think a lot of the time, the release, the letting go, just becomes a behaviour that's it, it's just overlooked as something that the dog is supposed to do or that it must do. If you're working with a biting dog, um, you know, depending on the discipline that you work amongst, there, 
the dog is going to have to let go of an assistant that is lots of fun several times through that competition. So for me, letting go and being heavily rewarded for that is just a day-to-day thing that you do every single day so that when you ask the dog to loose, the dog spits the thing out thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get the next one now or I'm going to be rewarded in some other way. And a lot of the time where the problem comes is because people do apply pressure. They do get angry at the dogs. They don't want them, them to hold on, but they're not thinking back to what strengthens behavior, reinforcement strengthens behavior, rewards strengthen behavior, and that is how the behavior remains consistent. And a lot of the time, I just think it's down to lack of consistent work with the behavior that you're putting into place. But yes, it certainly can be done, Nick, and I've done it many, many times. Yeah, this is interesting to me because everything you're saying makes total sense to me. But I know when I go back and I talk to these uh, balance trainers that are involved in this world, they're going to say, you know, yeah, you can sure you can do it with uh, the helpers and and all of that under your training scenario. But when you go out in the real world and your dog is actually fighting someone, but what in is a real life situation? What is, what is the real world for those people? Um, you know, lots of the, lots of these guys um, that you know have that their dogs and that they're, they're doing biting type work with them. You know, lot, lots of people, lots of policemen um, never never bite their dogs never actually bite somebody for 95 percent of civilian people or 100 percent of civilian people their dogs are never going to bite a person um playing with the assistant which is what it should be and which is my ethos that i've applied all of the way working and i've worked with dogs um i'm not saying that i'm more experienced than anybody else nick but i've worked with biting dogs all over Europe. I've tested dogs um, all over Europe, right the way up to, you know, dogs of a um, world championship standard. And when they're biting me, um, teaching them to be desensitized and happy in the sense of pressure, it's all just a big game for the dog. You know, the clatter stick that we use in Mondeo ring, that's something that I use to share affection with the dog. So when they go to bite the man in a competition, the dog knows that when the stick clatters, they're never, you're never allowed to hurt the dog. It, it's, it, it's unethical. You wouldn't be able to do that. They're allowed to um, impress on the dog by waving the stick around and making lots of noise in it. But through consistent training, generalizing the behavior, proofing the behavior in different places, the dog understands that the stick is just something that Craig shares affection with me with. It makes all of those funny um, movements and noises. It raises up above his head, and then it comes down, and he shares affection with me. Uh-huh. They're all of these things that the dog associates with but it's for me it's the understanding that the dog is always going to be rewarded and making sure that it's clear for the dog it's just another game nick particularly Mm -hmm. for people in the sports world it's just another game for them and how much work is being put in around the release and how much does the dog understand the behavior are asking for what's the reinforcement history in the behavior how much aversion has that person put into the release and is that why the dog isn't letting go because if a dog isn't letting go it's very likely because of the conflict in the poor animal's mind because of the amount of aversion that they put onto them because they haven't trained the behavior correctly it's i don't i don't understand it's you know i don't understand and if you work with if you go overseas and if you work with world-class trainers world championship level trainers they don't teach the release aversively but they teach the the, the release through positive reinforcement that's how they teach it you know they may very well lots of them will do later on um use some form of aversion but they teach the dog to let go of the article they teach the dog to let go of the costume 
via positive reinforcement. So, you know, every, everybody looks at things differently. I'm not a, um, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent now. You've, uh, no, no, it's, you've, it's fascinating to hear you talk. my passionate umber. <laughs> lots and lots of people, um, lots of people um, ask me questions revolving around the release and, you know, how do we get the release? If you've got a two and a half year old Malinois, that is used to playing, biting onto things, you know, what, and they're biting onto something that they don't want to let go. It, they're not going to let go unless you reward them with something that is absolutely amazing and that the reward is beneficial for them. To do anything else would be brutality, Nick. And, you know, that the ethics of a human being like that is certainly something that I wouldn't want to have anything to do with whatsoever. Yeah. And a lot of the time, you know, these people are saying, well, that is the ultimate reward. You know, what else can you offer the dog? But yes, yeah, I completely understand that. The, the assistant offers an intense reward. But what have they been doing in the run up? The biting is something that they do all of the time. And lots of people push the dogs into a crazy place for biting uh -huh. and they don't reinforce the release enough yeah, when yeah. the puppy is a baby because they're scared they're going to break the biting. That's that, mm. that's really, really common. So, oh, okay. So somebody um, will bring a dog to me um, previously when I used to work with biting dogs lots and lots. I don't do so much of that now because often of the um, methods that people use when they train with them. But people bring a dog to me that's, you know, two years old and they say to me, oh, we won't let go. And I say, oh, okay. Um, and I give them a tuggy toy to play with the dog. And I say, ask him to let go. And the behavior is exactly the same. So mm -hmm. the dog isn't doesn't understand the reinforcement yeah. of, of letting yeah. go, spitting the said toy out. With the puppies then that I've got, um, he's six months old. We, um, apart from the part where he was teething, we play as, as reinforcement almost every day. You know, and he's not like a wild, crazy, like, he'll tug your arm out of your socket tugger. He likes to play in a particular way, and that's the, play, the way that we play. Every time he plays, Nick, every single time he releases and is rewarded mm. for it. During the game, mm. I reward him by reactivating the toy, and if I start another behaviour, after that reinforcement said, he gets a sweetie. He knows that when I say loss... The best thing in the world to do is to spit out because dad is going to produce the toy again. He's going to produce another toy. He's going to give me a sweetie. Mm. I want to let go. But I did that with him when I got him at nine weeks old. So we started off playing with two rubber bits of um, hose pipe. And when he brought one back to me, um, I held on to it. I'd ask him to loose. He opened his mouth and he threw the other one out. So he's, he's had that since he was a baby. He knows that that is a reinforcing behavior for him. And I think people just become so focused on, oh, the dog's got to bite in this way. Yeah. The intensity's got to be like this. They don't reinforce the behavior enough. And then it's like, this... oh, he, he won't let go. I wonder why he won't let go. Because the behavior <laughs> <laughs> to me this makes total sense right like just to get geeky for a second like this reminds me so much of it's all about reinforcement history right if you've had a long history of being reinforced yes. then that behavior is going to become really strong and i see this in some of the recall training i do you know with my little terrier we've done so much reinforcement history with the whistle that he will come back from chasing a squirrel 
Yes. And it's not that he prefers the the reward that I can offer him to chasing the squirrel. No. It's that the reinforcement history is so, so ingrained. Yeah, and that's, that's it's exactly the same thing. My outlook on the letting go, the three fundamentals for me, Nick, um, when I take a baby, a, a baby, a, a doggy baby, not a human baby, <laughs> is that I, I want them to let go of things when I ask them and I want them to find that behaviour extremely reinforcing. I want them to recall on like a five pence piece when I call them and I want them to find that behavior really reinforcing and I want them to really understand the foot or the heel position and find that really reinforcing. And that's what I put lots and lots of work into as the fundamentals as behaviors. Obviously the reinforcement strategies that I use are different to the the behaviors I'm talking about now, but it's consistent history with that reinforcement. And if you're working the bite in parallel to your um, obedience behavior, so lots of times, um, when young dogs are biting, they tear the leg wraps off of the um, off of the assistant. They tear them off and they run round with them in their mouth, and um, they run back to the crate and they jump in the van with them in in their mouth. So we haven't introduced the release in that set of circumstances. But that same day, we've played with a rolled up tea towel six times, and the dogs let go every single time. He understands the behaviour. So what, the first time that I ask for a release off of the leg wrap, I'm not going to have it hanging onto an assistant. I'm going to play with the dog with a leg wrap in exactly the same way that I play with the tea towel. I'm going to say loss, and as soon as he opens his mouth, click. And the leg wrap is going to become activated again. So it's um, I know everybody looks at things differently, Nick, but for me, it's something that doesn't. It, it's overlooked because I think people just think, oh, it's a behaviour that the dog should do, and the easiest thing in the world for them to do is to result to something that isn't consistently consistency and effectively hard work because it's hard work to consistently reinforce that behaviour and they're not building up that reinforcement history consistently. It's the same with recalls when you have to recall a dog off of um, a man running in a costume. The reinforcement history of that behaviour has got to be pretty um, consistent and amazing for the dog to turn and come back to us when he's chasing something to bite it. So it's exactly the same for your terrier and the squirrel, though, isn't it? It understands that the behaviour is reinforcing because there's so many applications and the reinforcement history is so strong. Yeah, people seem to really underrate reinforcement history. That it's fascinating to hear you talk about that and and really kind of reassuring. I'm wondering what you think about the whole kind of you know when you go around and you when you talk to people that are in these circles, right? Like you have this discussion of uh, teaching the dog in prey drive versus teaching the dog in defense, right? Like it seems like a lot of the stuff that you talk about with we're keeping the dog in prey drive. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Everything that I do um, for my play workshops is all taught around um, uh, prey drive. And everything that I do for a competition dog that you work with, uh, like a competition dog, is done in prey drive. But I think a lot of the time what happens is people become just a little bit misunderstood with how you would desensitize the dog to the application of the pressure in which they would um, uh, experience during a competition. So it, it, it's a, for me, it, it can be done. I, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not sounding overly confident in my ability, but I, I've desensitised lots and lots of dogs to the pressure in which they would experience during a competition through prey drive. You know, they, 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 we're just having this game. They chase, they bite, and then the things that I do whilst they're biting change, but it's all a reinforcing game for them. Yeah, wow, this is uh, this is so enlightening and so good to talk to someone that's actually done this and is kind of saying all these things that, you know, I thought it makes total sense to me 
Um, and just to hear it from someone that's so experienced is really reassuring. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. It's, um, I think it's just a little bit of a, a subject in which people, you know, there's lots of, um, there's lots of different opinions on training, and I'm, I'm by no means. I hope you can gather that by now. Egotistical, or say, you know, my way is the way that must be done. But for me, that you know, there's a different way, and there's there's always going to be different trains of thought. And you know, I'm I don't get into social debates with people with you know the best way to to train a particular behaviour. You know, for me, I'm a positive reinforcement trainer. That is how I'm going to train, and I think that is that you, you have to think about the behaviour and what the animal finds reinforcing to get it in that way to, to, for you to be able to get strength in the behaviour. And that's why a lot of people um, will often revert to other methods. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah. I honestly really enjoyed talking to you. So where can people find out more about the workshops, the book, things, uh, the things you're up to? Cool. Um, yeah, so Instagram, it's Craig Ogilvy Dog Training. Um, Facebook, Craig Ogilvy Dog Training as well. I've run out of uh, friend requests on the personal page now. And then it would be com for the website as well. So um, all of the information for workshops, etc., would be found on the website. My email address is on there as well. But if you want to get in contact, Instagram or Facebook are the two um, easiest ways to get in contact. And I'm always happy to answer messages. If you message me, I'll get right back. Well, thanks so much for uh, doing the podcast with me. Really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> thanks a lot, Nick. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. That was really cool. So much fun to talk to Craig. Don't forget that you don't have to remember all of those links. You can grab them all along with the show notes over at nickbenger.com slash Craig hyphen Ogilvy. And also remember that I'm doing online cons- consultations now. It doesn't matter if you're a dog trainer or a dog owner, if you're struggling to teach something or you just want to talk about a particular concept, then we can do a video call. We can uh, schedule that over at nickbenger.com slash book. And I'm really looking forward to meeting more of you uh, face-to-face online, if that can, if that's a thing. Um, because I've already had the opportunity to to do these sessions with a lot of you, and it's so much fun to talk to people that are regularly listening to the podcast um, and are already kind of on the same wavelength. So I would really uh, like to meet more of you. So, yeah. See you guys. <laughs>